0: Hello, welcome to the CSF Rheumatology Author Interview Podcast. My name is Professor Peter Nash from uh, the Univers- Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane, where it's a beautiful blue skies, warm day as summer's approaching. And today we're very fortunate to be joined by Professor Stanley Cohen from the Southwestern Medical School in Dallas. So we do welcome you, Stanley, and we do appreciate the time you're giving to us. Today we're exactly. going to talk a little bit about the... Uh, Stanley's recently published paper in Annals of Rheumatic Diseases which is looking at the safety profile of the JAK1 selective upadacitinib in rheumatoid arthritis and this is an integrated analysis from the entire Select Phase three clinical trial program and uh, so welcome Stanley. First of all would you mind just giving us a little bit of background about yourself, how you came into rheumatology, how you got to Texas, and how you got into partnership with Roy Fleischman. Everyone would be very interested in that.
1: (laughs) Well, that's uh, obviously from a long time ago in a place far, far away. But uh, like most of us, um, it was a mentor who got me into rheumatology uh, when I was in medical school in the University of Alabama at Birmingham. It was also 1972, and immunology was just beginning. And uh, I had uh, wonderful teachers, Bennett, uh, Max Cooper, people who basically discovered uh, the, where the B-cells come from, so it was a fascinating time. And I spent a month on rheumatology and uh, had a wonderful uh, mentor, Dr. Gene Ball, rheumatologist, and, and uh, matter of fact, when I went and trained at UT Southwestern, my, I was the only one of 30 residents who went into rheumatology, and actually the only one who went into rheumatology for like five years. So, um, you know, it was a great time, it was a very interesting time, and then Actually, Roy was across the street at a hospital, and uh, I was uh, doing clinical rheumatology and then some uh, bench work. and uh, And he was looking for someone to come over there and do clinical work, and so uh, I went and worked with him. and It's it's been a unique uh, experience, uh, as everyone knows. Uh, but uh, you know, um, deep down, Roy's a good guy, and uh, when you you know once you get past all the bluster and all of that, uh, you can uh, make it work.
0: You're like the Roy whisperer. So tell right. us about your, your research interests and what your unit's been working on just a little bit and then maybe how COVID has changed what you've had to do this year.
1: So we've been fortunate to have a clinical research center going back to 1982 and, and have had a lot of fun with it. Our primary interest is inflammatory arthritis. We will dabble in osteoarthritis, uh, connective tissue diseases as well. But my primary interest is inflammatory arthritis. And, we were fortunate to be involved in the first uh, early phase trial with the Attercept, for example, uh, which you know, in my lifetime was the greatest sea change in uh, rheumatology and the management of our patients with inflammatory arthritis. As you well know, we no longer have our functional class four rheumatoids. They don't exist because of that. Uh, so we've continued that involvement. Uh, we're trying desperately to bring young people into the unit and get them involved in clinical research. And I think we finally have been successful in that. So we're still working on some novel phase one therapies in uh, RA, and, and, and uh, you know they have a long road and a high threshold uh, to achieve if they're going to get to the marketplace eventually. But you know again, as immunology has matured, the understanding of the cells involved in the pathogenesis of these diseases, we have multiple targets. And then uh, fortunately, you know we were involved with, for about 10 years looking at various small molecules, the MAP kinase inhibitors, and so forth, the mix and and we really were out in the desert for 10 years and really were unsuccessful. And then uh, through basic work by John O'Shea and others uh, realizing the importance of the JAK-STAT pathway in inflammation, looking at various uh, knockout models, they determined that uh, possibly the uh, Janus kinase enzymes would be an attractive target. And finally, we had a small molecule, an oral molecule that, uh, as you know, we, and has well been delineated, uh, is as effective as biologic therapies. And uh, to some degree, a similar safety profile with a few uh, differences such as Zoster and possibly increased risk of opportunistic infection.
0: And COVID knocked you around. How's it changed your practice? Well, COVID almost
1: brought our research center to its knees uh, because obviously the studies were curtailed. Uh, new studies have been delayed. Uh, patients were reluctant to come in. Uh, we're now back up and operational about 80% of what we were uh, before. So for research, it was, uh, Very, very difficult. For the practice, in March, April, we had a dramatic decline, the number of patients coming in. We did a lot of telehealth, uh, which is great if a patient's doing well. Uh, If a patient's not doing well, it's not so effective. And we've uh, slowly climbed back to where about 90 95% of what we were, but um, we are having another surge here in the States. Uh, I think uh, December, January is going to be tough months, so I would not be shocked if we had to curtail activities again uh, and go back to telehealth for a while but optimistic now with the vaccines uh, that uh, will be on the other side of this by next summer.
0: Excellent, so let's talk a little bit about the paper now. Can you just tell us um, what the methods were, how you went about doing this study?
1: Well this was an integrated safety summary of which uh, you and I have both been involved in a number of these throughout the years and this was taking a look at the clinical registration program had a Sidinib, the phase three design. And all of the Jack and had a similar phase three design. They were looked at in uh, dmr naive patients. They were looked at in biologic experience patients. They were looked at in methotrexate incomplete responders or CSD-mart incomplete responders. So uh, we, take, we took a look at the totality of the phase three placebo controlled studies. Uh, we looked at the active comparators, Adalimumab obviously with fewer patient years of experience. About 800 patient years. but the trexate about four to five hundred patient years, uh, compared to the opanassidine 15 milligram dose, the approved dose, and the 30 milligram dose, which was not approved, and had about 4,300 patient years of experience with the 15 milligram opanassidine dose.
0: Could you just explain? I get confused between exposure-adjusted event rates and exposure-adjusted incident rates, and maybe okay, what that- the yeah, the the
1: events, event rates are actually the total number of events and a patient could have more than one event. So they'll be counted. An instance rate is, if, you know, it if occurs in, a, pa- a patient is counted as having incident rates. So you could have more events than you could have incidence rates. Most of the uh, safety data has really been based on event rates uh, with the comparators.
0: And the SIR just compares you to the American population? Right, to
1: look at the overall rates of uh, cancer
0: and, uh, you know, things like that, mortality. As, right, as well to see if there's any imbalances. And what were the major findings of the study?
1: Well, the major findings is that uh, the, what we're often concerned about is the events of interest, like serious infectious episodes, uh, sostre, opportunistic infections. And the hepatocidin of 15 milligrams, uh, the infection rate was similar to that seen with methotrexate and adalimumab. Well, it was similar to adalimumab, a little bit higher with methotrexate, as we've seen with other JAK inhibitors. Um, as far as uh, malignancies, uh, deaths, major adverse cardiovascular events, there was really no difference between upadacitinib and uh, the comparator, adalumumab.
0: There was a difference, as
1: we would have expected, with um, herpes zoster. There was an increase. So talk a bit, about, talk <laughs> a bit
0: about zoster. So you yes. had. Uh, good 4% of Asians, 5% of Asians, and, and around the Asia Pacific here, they're very, very paranoid about Zoster. How, yeah. how should we manage it? We know there's an increase with rheumatoid, and clearly an increase across the Jack class. How do you manage that Zoster issue where you are? Because we can't even get Shindrix, we have to use Zosterbax. Well, we're fortunate, we have
1: Shindrix, and uh, so we're trying to get everyone vaccinated when they go on methotrexate, uh, so they're already ahead of the game. So we're, if we have a new patient who's a methotrexate complete responder about a biologic complete responder and about to go on a JAK inhibitor, we tell them to go ahead and get their first uh, dose of the and then dose two to four weeks later uh, with the JAK inhibitor. So we, I think we're finally on top of that. I was very pleased to see at this year's ACR meeting, a small abstract with about 40 or 50 patients per call on JAK inhibitors. who received uh, the comment. Zoster vaccine, and show that 75% of the patients had a good response to the vaccination. So, you know, our, our patients were not studied in all of the Schoenrichs uh, trials, so it was good to see some uh, uh, small data in our patients who were on immunomodulators. So that's what we do. I mean, I, again, I think in Asian patients, uh, there is definitely a much greater risk, uh, noted with all of the jacket inhibitors, and uh, hopefully uh, they'll have the availability of some type of, uh, vaccine in the future. Because Ostevax, as you know, comforting, and I'm sure you are probably using it in your patients on biologics now, but the small numbers, but have not shown increased risk of uh, complications in patients receiving the live vaccine.
0: And that's nice as well. Michael Weinblatt at ACI Convergence showed uh, that getting the vax didn't flare your, your rheumatoid, or if it did, only a small percent, and only a few had to change treatment. So that was reassuring as well. Let's talk a little bit about the VTE issue, which is you know, I'm struggling. Is it a Jack class issue or a Jack one, Jack two issue? What is your feeling and, and what did this study show?
1: Well, this study showed that they had, uh, you know, VTEs who had to sit there at the rate that you expect in RA patients, which is somewhere between, when published reports, 0.3 to 1 per 100 patient years. So, uh, so very rare. Um, and they did note, however, and there was also, um, an abstract of ACR subsequently by Ernie Troy in his which is sub analysis and, I, and uh, demonstrate again that patients who had had a previous BTE were at higher risk, but that also holds for patients on other biologics uh, they're just at higher risk patients, uh, obese patients are at higher risk Older patients so it's really a conundrum I, I, I must say that i'm as confused today as I was when the First signal came out with varicinib, and then the EMA report uh, about the 10 milligram dose of toposidinib in patients who are at risk for cardiovascular uh, disease, where clearly the 10 milligram BID dose was statistically different from the step or alimimab in the risk of uh, venous thromboembolic events. So if you take a look at the global populations, all of the studies, we just, I was one of the authors in a paper recently published in ARD uh, Looking at this, i don't call if you were as well, uh, Phil. But Peter, but um, it, it, I just don't know. Uh, so what am I doing? Let's say, let's look at it that way. Uh, I'm not giving a jack inhibitor to patients who've had a previous VTE um, if I have an alternative. Um, in my older obese patients, if I have an alternative, I'm not going to use uh, a jack inhibitor at this point. But if we don't understand the mechanism of action uh, the global data sets were clean, but patients with cardiovascular risk, obese, older, previous VTEs, I think we should go elsewhere for
0: now. Okay. So we have plenty of choice. So that's very, very reasonable. Uh, and I noticed two arterial thromboses with the ver- with the 30 milligram dose, which is just a bit odd. And when you push the dose to 30, you start seeing a touch of anemia like you're losing jack selectivity at the higher doses. What do you think?
1: I think you're 100% correct. I, I've said from the beginning, having worked with tofacinib starting back in 2006, mm-hmm. looking at their data, transplant populations, their dose range mm-hmm. study. These drugs have a very narrow therapeutic window. And if you go too high on the dose, you're gonna get into trouble. You're gonna become yeah. a pan-JAK inhibitor. You're gonna hit off-target kinases as well. And so that's why I think we saw with uh, al- almost all of these drugs that the lower dose was approved, and the higher dose was not. And uh, again, I think uh, you know, the, the, the multiple targets and, and such a, a possibility when you get a CMAX that's so high that you're going to hit other kinases that are going to get you into trouble. So uh, the 30 milligram dose was not really more effective, and it had a lot significantly greater toxicity. And I think the regulatory authorities did the right thing by uh, not approving it.
0: I think you're hundred percent correct. And like you were saying mechanistically, I've never seen a paper published that looks at factor five laden protein C, protein S, antithrombin three, cardiolife, none of the mechanistic things that go with clotting, I've, I've never seen that published as far as what, if the jacks influence any of those things or they don't. No, that's true. So let's talk a bit about gastric perfs because everybody seems to just say, if it's IL-6 inhibition, you must get gastric perfs. The incidence was very, very low. So people seem to focus on this incredibly low incidence.
1: Well, the incidence rate was about one in a thousand, which we saw with other JAK inhibitors as well. So it's very low, unless <laughs> you're that one person who has the gastric perforation, <laughs> colon perforation. So, you know, and obviously we know the IL-6 story, this drug is a JAK1 inhibitor. And, and, and certainly inhibits IL-6. I think, you know, lacking better evidence or data, we want to be concerned. I mean, Jeff Curtis did a study several years ago, which said that patients who had a history of diverticulitis were at higher risk of perforation. Uh, so, I mean, I think in those patients, it wouldn't <coughs> be my first place to had an alternative. And if you have a patient who are no alternatives, just having a proper informed
0: uh, consent to decision and uh, discussion with the patient is what's uh, necessary. And from the other JAKs, we try and reduce steroids and NSAIDs, which seem to be a risk as well. Absolutely. So tell us a touch about Mason lipids. I think that's also, there's not much of a signal because the index is balanced over time. Right, exactly.
1: So uh, none of the jack inhibitors have shown an increase in MACE events compared to uh, what you would expect in the uh, comparable control population or the control population in studies. Uh, we know that about 15 to 20% of patients uh, an elevation in uh, their lipid profile, but again, the HDL, ldl ratio in general was unchanged. Uh, at least here in the States, we're checking a lipid panel eight to 12 weeks after starting uh, the JAK inhibitors and acting on that if we need to. And if it's
0: okay at that point, there's really no
1: reason to monitor it subsequently. It doesn't seem to be much additional
0: change. No, I think it's pretty fair. And with TB and opportunistic infections, we have to treat these drugs like any other biologic and screen and be careful.
1: Absolutely. Uh, pre-screening for TV. I think there's a the slight increased signal not for optimistic infection. Most of these were mucosal candidiasis, which were not uh, a significant issue, but it's just something uh, we need to be cognizant of. You know, the, again, as I said earlier, and I'm sure you agree, you know, this, this is not a drug for, these are not drugs for sissies. Um, we need to be careful in our patients with multiple comorbidities. Um, I think that uh, because of their Uh, multiple uh, cytokine inhibition uh, that um, these drugs need a little closer monitoring. Somewhat remind me of, you know, 22 years ago with laflunamide, really good drug, but required monitoring, a few more aggravating side effects. Um, You know, the beauty of these drugs is they're oral, and
0: uh, so patient um, uh,
1: adaptation to these medications is or pl- our pleasure with these drugs is great because they don't have to inject.
0: I'm with you. We shouldn't let, just because it's a tablet, get starting to get used at general practice or general physician level. It really should stay with the rheumatologist.
1: Yeah, and I, and, I think that, and I think that in patients with multiple comorbidities, these would not be the first choice. And I know you were the first author on the ULAR review of uh, you know, kinase inhibitors. and I think that's something we need to keep in mind as we move forward with these therapies, which are gonna become much more prevalent in other diseases like atopic dermatitis, possibly lupus, and we know the spinal arthropathy data looks good as well.
0: So, just to knock a few more off malignancy, no signal over time, although we're very cognizant of melanoma, non melanoma skin cancer here, and there was some signal with the 10 milligram TOFA. What about UPA?
1: There really wasn't uh, much of a signal, but you just need to be, these patients need to be monitored. I think for all patients own immunomodulatory therapy, going back to azathioprine and all the problems we've seen with the uh, cutaneous uh, can, skin cancers, benign skin cancers. I, I have I try to get my patients to see a dermatologist once a year.
0: Perfect. And finally, what about CPK and, and the Jacks? There was one rhabdomyolysis, which must be the only yeah, case ever. Uh,
1: yeah, and that that was on you know, 30 milligrams, and that patient had some other medical clinical issues, but Again, it's an interesting thing, you know, having done phase one trials for many years, we always would see CPK elevations, because we checked They're always being monitored, and there really were no clinical uh, relevance. But um, I think that uh, you know, if, if certainly someone's having myalgias or weakness, it, it's, you may keep, need to keep that in mind, but we really haven't seen it. Uh, the other thing that's interesting that I'm getting to see a little occasional patient, and you know, we've known about this minor serum creatinine elevation, with all the JAK inhibitors, which really has been clinically insignificant, but when you I'm seeing it a little bit in some patients who, like for example, a patient with IgA nephropathy who is on a um, prednisone, seeing a little bit of an increase, which gives you a slight angst. Um, and I've had one other patient I've had to take off the JAK inhibitor who had an elevation in uh, serum creatinine, decrease in GFR that improved. So although in the clinical trials there was very little concern, I think it's something we have to be aware of as well.
0: Like you say, you see some funny things. I have a couple of patients who were bitterly complaining about recurrent herpes simplex. You know, these other viruses that would fit with the mechanism of action that Absolutely. you never see it in any of the trials or anything. Makes me wonder we should make sure our girls get Gardasil for HPV if they're going on to OOPA or something like that.
1: Well, certainly by inhibiting an interferon, type 1 interferon, which this does. and We've seen it with anifrolumab and other drugs that... Uh block interferon, you see a viral signature. And I think that's, again, one of the uh, reasons that I'm saying that in patients with multiple comorbidities, uh,
0: we need to be a little more conservative. So it's been a pleasure having a chat. Uh, any take home message for the clinician about uh, UPA? And do you see UPA in any way different to the other jacks, either efficacy or safety?
1: I don't think that UPA is different from efficacy or safety. I know they had in the efficacy data superiority, they limumab uh, instead of a similar response like TOFA had. Um, I think it's very similar. I think the, the fascinating thing which we're beginning to see, and there was an abstract both at ULR and ACR, and I'm sure you're seeing it in clinic and I'm seeing it, is that you can potentially cycle through the jacks for patients. I've had patients who've and not done well in TOFA, they have done well in UPA. And in the paper, the Spanish paper that was presented, uh, I think it was from Spain, maybe an Italian paper. Um, the patients who had failed one or the other, they flipped them back and forth, and they had a significant clinical response to the second jack inhibitor. And so we'll never see a clinical trial done because there's no benefit to the pharmaceutical companies. But uh, I think as we'll learn from observational registries, whether or not these drugs uh, you can cycle, and I think you can.
0: Excellent, thank you so much. We um, greatly um, appreciate your work to the author interview podcast. If you'd like to know more about this paper and other papers uploaded to the CSF website this month, detailed slide sets are available in the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from give us some feedback and let us know. Thank you so much, Stanley, for your time. Thank you, Peter.